0: this is Laren Baker and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Anna Olson, the professionally trained chef and host of Food Network's Baked with Anna Olson, as well as the popular Oh Yum with Anna Olson channel on YouTube. Anna also shares her baking expertise as the author of 10 best-selling and award-winning cookbooks and has released her latest book aptly named Baking Wisdom, the complete guide, everything you need to know to make you a better baker. I'm so excited to welcome Anna to the podcast. Hi, Anna. Hi, Lauren Thanks for having me. I want my guests to know that you are in your beautiful kitchen studio, which is gorgeous. It's so unusual from all the other interviews I get because usually it's a desk. <laughs> so it's a nice sneak peek into where you make all the magic happen.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, this is this is it. And I mean, you will often find me at my desk because in order to write recipes, it's um a lot of it is the typing and then the editing and so while the fun part and my favorite part is being in the kitchen people think oh well don't you have someone transcribe your recipes for you or do you dictate them there's something about the brain to hand i hand write when i recipe test and then no one can make sense of those notes i'm the only one who can actually sit down and
0: And get the recipes typed out (laughs) (laughs) well that makes me feel better about my chicken scratch because i have a binder just like that (laughs) i always start by asking what's the first thing that you ever cooked and about how old were you oh my goodness i actually
1: have it documented too um the very first okay no there are two things so the very first thing I baked my mom nicknamed gourmet goo because I was always fascinated by being in the kitchen. And so she would just give me random ingredients, you know, stale bread, some milk, some eggs, and inevitably some chocolate chips. And she would just let me make whatever it was I needed to make, put it in a pan, and I would make her bake it. And I would sit there and watch it bake, whatever it was. And she would... <laughs> you know, pretend that she was enjoying it as she was eating it. And, you know, Such I a thought good it was mom. Just the best thing. <laughs> but I actually have my mom save. She saves everything. Um, she saved the very first recipe I ever wrote. And it's because I had a fruit salad at the babysitter's house next door. Uh, and I loved it so much that I made her give me the recipe and I wrote it down. Um, oh. And she saved it. it. It has apples in it. A P L A P E L S with cinnamon <laughs> sprinkled on top. All my little t- typos, but I had to document what that recipe was and then make it again.
0: Oh, that's so nice <laughs> to have that recorded forever. <laughs> Such a good mom. <laughs> um, so, could you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? And it sounded like you already had an interest in cooking at a young age. So. When did a life of pastry become part of the dream for you? Well, the formal
1: entry into the culinary world was a second career choice for me. The love of baking was a lifelong enjoyment. And I think for a lot of people who do love time spent in the kitchen baking, it comes from a a familial influence. And my influence was my grandmother. She loved cooking, but she adored baking. And that was how she expressed herself creatively and showed her love. And so like a lot of people, if you wanted to hang out with grandma, that meant you were in the kitchen. And if you were in the kitchen with grandma, that meant she put you to work. So it was sort of that just side by side enjoyment of baking. And that's where it became a love and a hobby for me, because that was where I found my time to relax. And It never occurred to me to make a career of it. It was just a part of my life. And so I studied political science and sociology in university. I went into banking because I didn't know what else to do at that point. And I was in banking for a number of years. I worked for a portfolio management company in Toronto and I was in not in charge of, I was hardly in charge of anything, but I was on the bonds and currency side of things, bonds and treasury bills. And I was, this was the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So interest rates, you know, kind of what we're seeing now, interest rates were all over the place, going skyrocket. Currencies were un- unsteady. And I found myself up at two in the morning, stress baking because baking just to unwind. And I had what I call my muffin epiphany, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so I'm in my mid twenties at this point and I'm looking down at this batch of banana muffins and realizing this, doing this is what makes me happy. And so within a matter of months I quit and I looked into going to cooking school. I'm a dual citizen. I was born in the States, uh, in Atlanta. And so the culinary programs here in Canada didn't offer anything that really suited my need. I needed to be able to work full time and go to cooking school. And so I found a program in Vail, Colorado, part of Johnson and Wales. It was fast track. So if you already had a degree, you knew what you wanted to do 12 months, let's get you going. And I was like, perfect. Wow. Yeah. So we did our cooking classes, you know, where normally cooking school is like any college or university program where you, you know, you've got your 15, 20 hours a week and you fit it in along with other things. This was Monday to Friday, nine to five, or a little bit earlier so that we could all go to work afterwards. And it was a fun program because the cooking school was in the ski chalet, the commissary that was at the top of the ski hill off season. So in summertime we were up there doing our culinary labs in the winter. We were working in the restaurants when they needed the help. Mm -hmm. And then that's when we would do our theory. And so it was an amazing experience and I came out of it learning a lot of who I was as a cook, um, which I think was very important because I didn't have time to waste.
0: Yeah. And in 12, I mean, usually culinary school is a much, much longer endeavor. It's so nice to mm-hmm. be able to just get right away. And so I guess I'm guessing you also did some did it require like stages and things like that on your end. <laughs>
1: Yes, the, the work you did had to be apprenticed. It was essentially a year-long stage, so it mm-hmm. had to be approved by the school okay. um, to know you were getting the experience you needed. And then the apprenticeship followed afterwards. And so I spent some time, I worked in Texas and New Orleans, and then found my way back to Niagara. And that's where my culinary, every, every apprentice cook goes through that exploration mm-hmm. to figure mm-hmm. out who they are as a cook. And I was drawn to restaurants that were had seasonal and local menus. And even though I was trained as a cook, I went to study to be a chef, not a pastry chef, I was always drawn to the kitchens. And I would tend to work in smaller restaurants where if there was a pastry chef, When that pastry chef wanted to take a day off, someone had to fill in. And I would always volunteer to be that, the tournaunt in the kitchen. Mm. I like seeing every department, but I was drawn to the pastry kitchen. And so my apprenticeship started at first without a tutor by my side. My apprenticeship was I was given the recipe book. I was given the to-do list. And I basically couldn't leave until A became B correctly. (laughs) or I would hear about it. And so I would have to rely on my own resources or then learn because I would be corrected and learn, you know, this didn't, you know, your creme brulees were overcooked. This is why this happened. And the whys were becoming the fascination for me. And that's how my pastry chef apprenticeship began. And then when I found myself here in Niagara working at a fine dining restaurant that was small at the time when I arrived, But because I stayed there for over eight years, I was able to grow with it. So I was able to be a pastry chef when it was small, busy. And I basically had a space to work in. That's the size of this table Mm -hmm. Um, to having my own bake shop. It evolved over eight years. So I had my own pastry kitchen with a team of about four staff and the the restaurant then opened a banquet facility to do weddings. They opened a hotel. So I had to do the the breakfast. I was able to grow into it and keep learning as I was leading. It was an amazing time in establishing my sort of professional side of my career.
0: Yeah, I can't think of a better way to become educated. A lot of it you're having to do on your own. So I think you learn a lot faster when you do it that way and make mistakes along the way, which is why I think you're such a good teacher, because I think you're probably very cognizant about, you know, any issues that you came across while you were baking or cooking and then now you can adequately explain it to the rest of us. So I think that's super, super valuable.
1: Well, thank you, Liren. I think a big, when it comes to baking, building confidence in baking, 90% of it is either knowing how to avoid a disaster or if you get yourself into a pickle, how to get out of it without. and, And we're being more aware these days of I don't want something to go badly, and then you're throwing away expensive baking ingredients. Let's let's understand what's happening, let's enjoy the process and the time, take the stress out of it, and come out with something delicious at the end.
0: Okay, and so this is a perfect segue for why I love your book so much, because you have whole sections on troubleshooting, and even within the recipes, I feel like you're really right there with us. You have so many little notes, and, from baking ingredients to troubleshooting and baking blunders, I think that's what makes your book so valuable. So, can you just explain to people, like you know, how to best navigate a baking blunder aside from getting your book?
1: <laughs> well, there are. I, I'll, I'll share some of the tips. That yeah, I share that'd be great. Book. Um, I call them the little essays, and and you can tell this book was written during the pandemic because it was only supposed to be hundred recipes and now it's hundred more than 150. And what became very important, it, we refer to it as the front matter. Those mm-hmm. points you mention, little tips like whipping up egg whites to the proper peak is important. And you hear, you know, soft peak meeting and peak stiff peak referred to, well, what are they? So I show you what they are, but what happens inevitably, you're always told, well, don't over whip your egg whites. Well, why? First of all, you want to understand why. And then it happens. It happens mm-hmm. to all of us. What do we do? Can you know, do I have to throw the egg whites out and start again if I've done it? So first understanding why you don't work with over whipped egg whites and you you want to be able to recognize them. So they lose their shine. They be, They stop becoming smooth. They look kind of like sea foam, rough and craggy. Yes.
0: Um,
1: that's your sign, visual, visual sign that you've overwhipped them. The reason you don't want to use them is now because those egg whites, with the air worked into them, the protein of the egg whites, the albumin holds the air in. Once they've been stretched to their maximum volume, the minute you touch them, now they're so fragile, they're going to collapse. Yeah. And also, should they even get in, mixed into your batter and go into the oven? Well, because they've been stretched to their maximum volume, the heat will expand them further. That cake may lift up, but it's going to collapse Mm -hmm. the minute you take it out of the oven. So now that you understand why not to use them, what do you do? And my fix is is the easiest thing possible, you go make a cup of tea. (laughs) Because you just set the egg whites aside. Even if you've added sugar to them, that's absolutely fine. The time it takes you to put the kettle on make and brew a cup of tea sit down and enjoy it those egg whites now because they're overwhipped are going to collapse on themselves and you're going to see a little pool of liquid at the bottom of your bowl because the egg whites are collapsing <laughs> that's your sign that okay you're good then what you do is on low speed you bring them back and you'll see the egg whites collapse even more and then they'll bring them back to the point you missed the first time around So you don't have to throw them away. You don't have to start again. Just give yourself about 10, 15 minutes and you're fine.
0: That's such a brilliant example. And your book is, there's so many things like that. You know, it's like an abbreviated pastry school textbook in some ways, because I feel like there's just so much to learn. Do you ever feel as though you're done learning? Or where are you in your learning wisdom journey? Because you've, you've got so much of it. That's a great question to
1: ask. And I've always told myself, if I think I know everything, well, then I should just stop. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I should sort of look in the mirror, because I think that's an ego check um, The <laughs> universe is taking over. So I never want to think uh, I know everything. There's always something to, to learn and know. And I'm not a scientist the way Harold McGee is. Mm-hmm. But I am fascinated, and I'm I, I have just this incessant curiosity. And that's all I ask of anyone who wants to pick up this book, is just have a sense of curiosity. You can be a novice baker and find recipes in this book you can start with and understand. And you can be an expert baker, and there are, there's going to be insight in there for you. And just because you, you are an expert baker does not mean you're making profiteroles au craquelin <laughs> every Saturday morning sometimes you want a really good sugar cookie. Um, and so when I explain the recipes, each recipe has a spoon marking that tells you if it's simple, more involved, or more complex. Mm-hmm. And so one, one to three spoons gives you the rating. And I never want to call a recipe difficult. It's, it's a matter of it has more moving parts, or it takes more time or, or the ingredient list may be longer than say a simple sugar cookie. So I never want a novice baker to be dissuaded simply because the recipe is described as complex. It just tells you set aside more time and read the instructions through before you start. And, and conversely, sometimes it takes less time and fewer ingredients, but there's always something to learn in there.
0: Yeah, and even the showstopper desserts, when you take the time to read your recipe, You really break it down very, very nicely. One of them that really caught my eye was, um, correct me if my pronunciation is wrong, is it the Esterhazy tort?
1: Oh, yes. No, that's correct. Okay. Could you tell
0: everyone about this tort? Because I, it's beautiful, number one, and I would love to know, like let everyone know when you first encountered it and how it made its way into your book.
1: Well, I didn't invent Esterhazy. so we have to be very clear. But I have a soft spot for the classic mm-hmm. European torts, especially the Eastern European torts. So Esterhazy is a Hungarian tort, and like a, a lot of European torts, lots of layers mm-hmm. and it's a dacquoise torte, which means it's simply a nut meringue layered with a frosting sliced almonds on the side, apricot jam under, underneath the glaze that kind of has a spider web pattern. That's the classic look and taste you can expect a lot of european shorts have nuts so Mm -hmm. almonds hazelnuts and the like and my favorite memory of it is when my my family background is slovak and so my parents and grandparents um, and that's where the love of the eastern european desserts comes from because that's Mm -hmm. the style my grandma mother would make But I, for my parents' 50th anniversary, I took them on a European cruise. We started in Vienna, but we did a day trip out to Bratislava. Um, And, you know, in my parents' lifetime, I don't think they ever thought that they would see Slovakia because you weren't allowed to go um, previous to the 1990s. And so to go and visit, and then we went to a coffee house. They're all beautiful in Eastern Europe. And we had desserts and I just I was drawn to the Esterhazy in the display case and we had that with really strong coffee and it was a very special bonding moment f- for my family and it was really meaningful so I wanted to go home and recreate this dessert as a sort of a tribute to my grandmother and remembering this moment and it's it takes it's complex it's got a lot of moving parts you've got the dakwas you've got the 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 frosting, you've and the assembly itself takes time and attention, but you feel so proud of what you've accomplished. And it is really up there in the higher echelons of pastry accomplishments.
0: Well, it's beautiful. I can't wait to try it. There's so many that I want to try. And another thing that I noticed in love is that you have that <clears throat> love for travel and you you kind of take them the recipes back almost like a souvenir, which is kind of like what I love to do too when I go, because mm-hmm. it's always about the food, um, and to recreate it at home. So I noticed that you had the Perry breast, which, and I saw your YouTube video on that as well, and the nata de coco from Portugal, like all mm-hmm. these recipes that you love to share. I, I guess what I'd love to know is what do you look for when you're trying to decide what is going to make it into a cookbook? Because there, I'm sure there's so much inspiration. How do you filter it down?
1: Well, That's a good question. I don't know that I have a ready answer for it, but as a prime example, I just came back. um, I host culinary tours. And so we did one of Mexico City just a month ago and a fascinating exploration. What an amazing and amazing food city. We Mm. had such a blast. I was convinced that I would go there. And what I would want to do is learn how to, how they make and serve churros. And I, I was convinced that was the recipe I was going to bring home. What I learned was they're they are difficult to make. And, you know, I've seen the choux pastry versions. Mm-hmm. The churros that you enjoy when you're in, in Mexico is such a dense, tight batter. It takes a machine to press it huh. into the oil that quite often is lard. And that's part of what makes the Mexico City churros so special and delicious and their own character. And they add flavors. Like the hot thing when I went down there was red velvet churros. Don't oh. know that that's my, yeah, I'm not sure thing. <laughs> I'm kind of, I like the classics. Yeah, um, And they do do the cinnamon sugar, but their chocolate is not the thick Spanish style chocolate when you get churros and chocolate there. It's more of a hot chocolate, but it's got the spice in it, the Mm. cinnamon and the chili pepper, and it's altogether different. And I just thought, okay, if I'm going to get frustrated trying to replicate that at home, then how am I going to communicate that to someone? Because it's not about what I can do. I want to set my viewers and readers up for success. And I just thought, okay, it's going to be something different. And so I was fascinated by there were two particular pastries I enjoyed there. I had a guava. Danish style pastry. And it had a, a fresh cheese layer on it and then a guava jam. Oh, that and that's so good. People spoke so highly of it in Mexico City. And then a pineapple empanada, a sweet pastry. And it's what the French version would be a chausser, you would call it. And it's typically an apple filling. But this had a pineapple jam. Oh, Liren, it was <laughs> divine. So I could see myself Trying to replicate something like that more successfully and being able to share what I've learned, and you know, I want that food memory when I take a bite, but I also want you to be able to make it feel good about what you've done, and then want to go to Mexico City and try it.
0: Well, I officially volunteer to recipe test for you on those two <laughs> recipes. Okay, that's fine.
1: I mean, your last yeah. name is Baker, so <laughs> I'm going to put you
0: to it. It's so funny. I forget that, and it's. It's so funny. Kids will come over to our house and they'll be like, Mrs. Baker, isn't it so interesting that your last name is Baker and you like to bake? And I'll be like, oh yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my gosh. I would love it if you could tell us more about your grandmother. I noticed that you did acknowledge her in, in the book and and you speak so beautifully of her, but I'd love to know like, what, what were the types of things that she would bake with you?
1: My grandmother was just you know she was a homemaker she that was she stayed at home full time took care of the family but it was truly that love of baking that was contagious to me and she would make a cheese soufflé without even thinking twice about it it just well you know Oh, what do I do today? Simple ingredients. Well, we've got some eggs and cheese and milk, so let's make a souffle. She would make the European dessert. So I came by the love of walnut and poppy seed pastries and breads. Uh, honestly, she would make pierogies and cabbage rolls. And, and I, I've learned, I've come to appreciate also having Hungarian, Polish, and Ukrainian friends that those key flavors are different in every region. And my Mm -hmm. other grandmother was from a different part of Slovakia and prepared the pierogies and cabbage rolls very differently. When my grandmother would make cabbage rolls, sauerkraut played um, a part. And you line the pan with sauerkraut, the bottom of the pan Mm -hmm. and the top of the pan. So the cabbage rolls have more of a pickled um, oh yeah, sister, when they bake, less about the tomato, more about the sauerkraut, where the Hungarian Gosh. type, I think have a little more tomato worked into them. And um, and she, yeah, she would make these torts and then Strudel. Strudel was another preparation. So this involved, um, because I think when my relatives left and came here it was when it was Austrian occupied. so there was a, kind of an overlap between mm-hmm. the Austrian, style desserts and the slovak the two were blending together so we would make strudel together and stretch the dough around the whole table and the whole idea was to latch it on the corners of the dining room table Oh wow. so You get it thin enough and then you put the apple filling and then roll it up but then she would also make very slovak um breads like the walnut roll that actually features in a previous book of mine or poppy seed roll and that's a yeast bread mm. but it was quite dense you would roll it thin and then do that spiral filling, and you would actually enjoy it. You know, we're speaking right now, and it's it's just a week before Easter, so it would be an Easter type bread that you would make ahead and freeze. So the baking around the holidays was is very important to me, and that's where I channel that sort of love of baking too much, <laughs> more than far more than you need, but then you give it to friends and family um, over the holidays.
0: Oh, what wonderful memories. If let's say a novice baker were to pick up your book today, where should they start?
1: Well, I've got a copy in front of me. I love the fearlessness kids have when it comes to baking. So, you know, they'll see Macaron TV and say, let's make those. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. maybe maybe start somewhere simpler. But kids also are sponges for knowledge, and so, You know, try making macaron. If you've got the tools and ingredients, then I say give it a try. But for a novice baker who wants to start with a bowl and a spoon, I mean, looking at this time of year, my hot cross muffins are great. Perfect. They embody everything in a hot cross bun. But if you've never made a yeast dough before, Mm -hmm. start with these because you just need a bowl and a spoon and a, a muffin tin. And you, you're making these, the sugar cookies with sprinkles are good. And I've got my little secret ingredient in there. I've got my, I put in a little melted white chocolate and I find that makes the sugar cookie that stays soft. You don't necessarily taste the white chocolate, but you get that chewiness to it. That's so fulfilling. That's such a Um, smart add in. I've got a lot of recipes that, you know, I, I have a recipe for making homemade puff pastry in this book. I saw that, but. Every puff pastry baked recipe in this book, you can use store-bought. So if you don't, if you're not into taking on that project of making uh, puff pastry, something to make, um, like my salmon and spinach wellingtons are oh, just yeah. an absolute beautiful use of puff pastry, creates an individual elegant main course. The potato tart tatin, I think is a beautiful blending of, it's a shout out to my Eastern European heritage, like. Potatoes and dough. Let's yeah. put the two together. <laughs> um, but also, you know, as a chef, you're typically in North America trained on this, the French method, the French kitchen, Escoffier, and then you defer to you know your French table of sauces and your pastry making tends to be French based. I love apple tart tatin, so I've done a potato version. And it's almost like pom Anna meets Tarte Tatin. So Tarte Tatin is an upside down apple tart mm-hmm. with puff pastry baked on top. Pomme Anna is thinly sliced potatoes that are baked, basted with butter. So they get crispy on the outside, soft underneath. This takes the two and puts them together. So you get the caramelized, crispy potato layer on top, the soft potatoes underneath, but then there's a nice buttery puff pastry. So you use that as a side dish. Oh, so good. Uh, Oh, it's so good. And the house smells so good when it's baking.
0: Oh my gosh, I would be happy with that. And maybe just a little bit of salad on the side. (laughs) I'm, I'm all about the carbs. And I was looking at your um, your savory cake, your onion, herb, and Parmesan upside down cake. Oh, I was like, that's a good one. I just, I love anything savory like that, you know, especially when it's something unexpected.
1: Oh, Liren, I love a good savory bake. And that's what, I didn't want this book just to be about sweets. Yeah. Yes, it's about baking. Even though I include a whole chapter on confections, even though that's technically not baking, mm-hmm. that baker's brain of uh, following instructions, being specific about temperatures opens up the world of confections. So if you want to take on making marshmallows or making bonbons or truffles, uh, tempering chocolate, it's, it's in there too. It's all about that, the methodical mind of baking.
0: Yeah, every single thing that you could possibly want to make is, is in your book, which I love. So, oh, gosh, before I let you go, I just have some closing questions. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency go-to meal?
1: Roasted chicken. Mm. Because you can just line it up, get it in the pan, throw it in the oven. And, yeah, five minutes work yields a delicious, satisfying meal. And, you know, when you're tired, you want some comfort food. And roasted chicken is that for me.
0: Oh, I agree, especially with the skin. (laughs) Oh, yes, Christmas skin, please. Um, What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? I think it's it's not in this
1: book, but it would be my grandmother's recipe for the Slovak word is pagač. And speaking to the carbs again, it is a soft yeast dough with a potato filling. And she would make it this time of year in the spring, And you would, so it's the two layers of dough with the cheese in the middle and the way she would make it, it would come out of the oven. She would brush the top with butter and sprinkle it with sugar, even though the dough wasn't sweet and the potato filling wasn't sweet, Mm -hmm. but you got that little bit of sweetness. I have a version. Now I put some cheddar cheese in the filling and then I sprinkle sea salt on top.
0: Oh, that sounds so comforting. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? I'm a baker. I'm a neat cook. (laughs) Yeah. Plus, you're trained, so you have to yeah. be. <laughs> well, it goes back to the bakery days
1: because working in uh, the restaurant, doing the baking shift means you're first. One, you're turning the lights on when you come in. You're the first one in, so the b- dishwasher isn't even scheduled to work until uh, you know. I've already been at work for four hours before the dishwasher appears. So you have to do your own dishes and you have to clean as you go.
0: Mm, I can see why that happens. So, what's a <laughs> good kitchen tip that you can share? You've shared a lot already, but. Another one.
1: Oh, there's so many little tips. Well, here, here's a great one for stabilizing whipped cream. Because if you're serving whipped cream to either use on or in a dessert, mm-hmm. or you're entertaining and say you're just serving fresh strawberries with whipped cream, to stabilize it so that it doesn't break down and weep when you put it in the fridge, for every one cup of fluid cream that you whip, add one tablespoon of instant skim milk powder, Um, That is pure protein that holds the cream in the place, you know, so if you whip it nicely, whatever state that is, it will hold that so you can frost a cake with it, you can put it in your bowl, pop it in the fridge, and it will stay like that for a full 24 hours.
0: I love that idea, especially because I like to try to make the whipped cream the day before, Mm -hmm. (laughs) save a little extra stuff. That's great. Thank you. Every week on Fridays, I try to share five little things, something that made me smile that week. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Yes. I
1: am a grandmother of one, and there's another one on the way. And I just learned that my one granddaughter is going to have a little sister. Oh, so that made me smile. that's awesome sisters are the best oh they're going to be very close in age too and i cannot wait esme the oldest is 15 months i can't wait until they're old enough and i can
0: get them in the kitchen yes passing on the, the kitchen wisdom the baking wisdom <laughs> i can see it now it's great anna thank you so much for spending time with me where can everyone find you your newest book all your other books Well, Baking Wisdom,
1: the newest, is available from bookstores everywhere, Amazon. You can order it directly. They're even on Premier Collectibles, which you can find from my social media handles, which are all at Chef Anna Olson. You can get a signed copy shipped anywhere in the world and Oh Yum! is my YouTube channel, and I do live streams regularly, and, and there's a new series launching every Tuesday, new episode called Baking Wisdom.
0: Awesome. Anna, thank you so much again for spending time with me today. I had such a blast talking to you.
1: Oh, it was a pleasure chatting with you, Laren. You're great. I can't wait until I hear about what
0: recipes you make next. I honestly, I've bookmarked so many. It's like... <laughs>
1: Oh, I love love seeing
0: that. And I love
1: when people bring me a book and it's like pages are glued together and it's all battered because it means it was used
0: and loved. Used and well loved. Those are the best books for sure. So I will definitely let you know. I'm I'm really narrowing it down. I want to bake them all, but yeah. (laughs) One at a time. Yeah, one at a time. Thank you again. I'll see you next time all right cheers Lauren. bye i'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of kitchen confidant thank you again to anna for joining us today her books are just like her youtube videos masterclasses in baking that will make anyone more confident i hope you check it out if you enjoy the show please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time until then happy cooking